0: going to be in Mark chapter 14 verses 32 through 42 this morning. Mark chapter 14 verses 32 through 42. Also have had some allergies going on which is a little bit compounded with uh, Janie's flowers here. They smell real good. Uh, She told me I could move them but I think they look nice. Anyhow I've got a cough drop in my mouth. They tell you not to do that so if my speech is slurred or you see something bulging out the side don't be distracted. Throughout history, there have been men and women who have bravely stared down their own deaths. One thinks of Socrates, who was condemned to drink hemlock as a means of his execution, and on his way to drink said hemlock, as he was surrounded by his followers, he just coolly tossed off ironic one-liners. He was not shaken by death. Perhaps as Christians, we are prone to think of the martyrs that have met their deaths with joyful resolve. Maybe you think of Latimer, who, on his way to be burned at the stake alongside of his friend Nicholas Ridley, said famously, Be of good cheer, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. Or maybe a polycarp who, told to denounce Christ or die, declared, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? All of these and many others throughout history have gone boldly to their deaths, with no evidence of hoping to avoid their end. However, in our text today, we will discover That as death breathes down Jesus' neck, he is not the unshakable Messiah King we've become accustomed to seeing still waves with a whisper and heal with a touch. No, we don't find Jesus straightened up and standing firm. We find him plunged into a sinkhole of despair. We find him swallowed up in grief we find him sweating and staggering. James Edwards writes, Why, we may ask, is Jesus so assailed by the prospect of his death? Surely we all know individuals who face the prospect of their deaths with greater composure and courage than does Jesus. The answer must be that Jesus is aware of facing something more than simply his own death. In chapter 10, verse 45, he spoke of his purpose, to give his life as a ransom for many. That was the objective description of his purpose. Now we hear the subjective experience of it. In Gethsemane, Jesus must make the first payment of that ransom. He must will to become the sin bearer for humanity. Jesus faced more than his death in the garden of Gethsemane. He faced both the prospect of becoming sin and the temptation to abandon his deepest desire, which was to obey his father's will, in pursuit of his current loudest and shallow desire to preserve his own life. Jesus' loudest desire in the garden is to have the cup of God's wrath removed from him. But his strongest desire is to affectionately obey the Father's will. Jesus struggles and staggers and stumbles, but ultimately he entrusts himself to his Father. And that's the main idea this morning. That's what I want you to think on as you uh, read this text throughout the week and meditate on it. Is that Jesus puts himself in his Father's hands to be crushed for the sins of man. Jesus puts himself in his father's hands to be crushed for the sins of man. And my exhortation to you this morning, I think it's kind of fun, it's don't sleep on Jesus. If you've ever heard somebody say, don't sleep on so and so, it just means don't underestimate them. Don't look past them. Take mind of them. Pay attention. That's how Urban Dictionary defines it anyway. I don't know if that's an authoritative source or not. But at any rate, when I say don't sleep on Jesus, I mean don't underestimate him. Don't look past his triumphant love. Don't underestimate his suffering in your place. We're going to walk through the text. I want to bring your attention to three things today. Jesus' humility, Jesus' humanity, and Jesus' heroics. I'm going to give us some context. We'll read the whole section together, pray, and then we will get started. If you remember, it is still Passover week. Jesus is loved by the crowds and hated by the religious establishment. Furthermore, he's already been sold out by Judas. He's just revealed himself to be the true Passover lamb of God and explained how that feast is really all about his coming and his suffering and his substitutionary sacrifice in the place of the people. As the Israelites took shelter beneath the blood of of lambs for temporary salvation from Egypt, so too must all humanity take shelter beneath the blood of Christ for our eternal salvation from sin. After changing the Passover tradition into a Christian tradition, Jesus predicted the coming defection of all the disciples and the denials of Peter. And of course, as we saw last week, they objected to this. Yet we saw Jesus' words would prove true and in short order, as they would defect, desert, and deny him. Before this desertion, though, they're here. Now they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. The name Gethsemane is derived uh, from the Hebrew meaning olive press. And John tells us that Jesus and his disciples had met here often, that it was a familiar place to them. I imagine it was a a type of oasis. It had a bit of a homey feeling to it. But now, this garden's name would prove ominously prophetic. As olives were crushed in the press, so too would Jesus be crushed. And so we read, Verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible the hour might pass from him and he said Abba Father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what I will but what you will and he came and he found them sleeping And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you will not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. and They did not know how to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would give us a sense of your holy presence. That you might overwhelm us by your Holy Spirit as Jesus was overwhelmed by grief. We pray that you might allow us to participate in this text so that we will know what it was like to be in that garden. So that we might have a sniff of what it was like for Christ to begin to be forsaken for our sin. Oh Lord, let us enter the garden with you today that we might taste of your goodness. Recognize our weakness and come to you anew begging for your love that we might understand your grace just a little bit more. And be changed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Jesus enters the garden knowing his time is short. And the prospect of becoming the object of God's unmitigated righteous wrath towards sin begins to haunt him. Jesus is distressed. He is sorrowful unto death. And so he prays. He prays. As grief grasps Jesus by the throat and begins to squeeze the life from his soul, Jesus prays. He prays. Jesus prepares to meet his greatest trial by meeting with God in prayer. Three times in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus praying at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. Jesus gives himself to prayer. It's a pattern for his life. Prayer typifies Jesus. God is glorified by his praying. And God is glorified by our praying. Prayer is essential to walking with God. That's why it's essential that we be a church that prays. I mean, we do this together, right? When we gather together as the church, we pray together by singing prayers. Many of the hymns we sing are prayers. They're requests being made to God. By praying God's word together as we prayed Isaiah 53 together earlier. And by praying together throughout the week in Bible studies and during visitations. It's important that we be a church that prays. Prayer, though, it's it's not only a corporate together thing. It's also an individual separate thing. We all have our private prayer lives. And if you're like me, at some point during your Christian life, uh, somebody came and they put their arm around you when you were younger in the faith, and they said to you, you know what would be a great idea is if you every day take a portion of time, you set it aside to meet with God in prayer and in the study of his word. 10 15 minutes maybe longer this discipline of having a quiet time starting my day by expressing my complete dependence and need upon Christ it has been perhaps the healthiest practice of my life i wonder has anyone ever taught you this have you ever tried it it really is helpful it's helpful because it it gets us in the habit of doing a healthy thing praying is not easy i think we're a little bit like babies Uh, When they first come out, you know how uh, an infant doesn't know how to talk? They just coo and caw. But what they do is they listen a whole lot. And eventually, throughout their process of maturation, they're able to communicate with you because they've heard you speak over and over and over again. And as they grow, they get a little bit better at communicating, a little bit better at communicating. I I think likewise, we are like babies when we pray. We don't really know how to do it, but the way we learn is by reading God's word and meditating on it. See, we listen to God's voice to learn how to pray well. Learn how to communicate with him. Prayer and meditation, it's not an easy thing, but it's an essential thing. I'm I'm not telling you to be silly and to make a legalism out of it so that you feel like if you forgot your quiet time that morning or evening or whenever you do it that God is mad at you. But I do want to encourage you to make a practice of it. At some point during your day, setting aside time just for you and the Lord. Give yourself to prayer. Let it typify you. So that when suffering comes, and it will come, you aren't tempted to run anywhere but to the arms of Christ. I mean, if Jesus, the greatest man who ever lived, if he needed to pray, why on earth would you presume that you don't need to. Verse 33, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. To this point in Mark, we have seen Jesus fearlessly exercising his divine authority. But here, In this garden, we see his humanity on full display. We see Jesus in utter weakness as he begins to drown beneath the weight of sin. In this garden, he who knew no sin would agree to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him though he would submit himself to his father's will though he would go to the cross and suffer and die he would first struggle here in gethsemane as he like an olive was pressed down As I'm sure you know, there's a big difference between knowing about something and being face-to-face with it. For me, the immediate example I think about is children. My first child, when uh, he was due to come along the way, I thought, hey, there's a baby coming, all right, we're preparing, we're making preparations. But when I came face-to-face with him, it became an entirely different thing, right? Not a whole lot of nerves those first few months as we were waiting for him to come along. But once he showed up and started crying and and needing fed and, and other things, kids need stuff, I guess, It was a different ballgame. There was a difference between me looking forward to that event and then being face-to-face with it. Or perhaps you can think of or imagine having the experience of, of scheduling a surgery, maybe six to nine months out in the distant future, not too shaken up about it, but then on the morning of becoming quite uneasy. Perhaps some of you have had that experience of lifting your ceramic coffee-filled mug to your lips on that morning and finding a slight tremor in your hand. The difference between something being far off into the future and being face-to-face with it. Just because Jesus has been marching towards the cross his whole life does not mean he is not filled with dread. He is greatly distressed and greatly troubled. Because he is on the precipice of inexplicable pain. Jesus suffers uniquely on the cross. I think sometimes we get caught up in his physical suffering, the nails in his hands and the spear in his side. And yes, that was awful, but it does not hold a candle to his spiritual suffering. He has for all eternity danced in rhythm with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity has always been in perfect lockstep, perfect community, perfect harmony. But now, now Jesus would be cut off from fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. He would lose himself. Unimaginable. Jesus here in the garden, he comes to his Father in prayer for comfort. And he finds hell. As he contemplates being separated from him. And he staggers. He he doesn't sin. But he does appeal for an alternative. Verse 35. And going a little farther. He fell on the ground. And he prayed that. If it were possible. The hour might pass from him. He fell to the ground and he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. C.J. Mahoney, he's preached the best sermon I've ever heard on this and I have it linked in my footnotes if you care for such things I'd encourage you to listen to it later on he's excellent he he responds to this portion of the passage saying this he who is used to hearing the father's voice in response to his prayers comes to him and he hears nothing the silence is deafening if there were any other way to save us from our sin the father would have answered there was no other way. Sin must be paid for, and forgiveness costs. And forgiveness always costs the one granting the forgiveness. For example, if you come over to my place and you're a little bit clumsy and you break a lamp, somebody has to pay for it, right? You can buy me a new lamp, which I know you're good people, you probably would do. Or I can say, I can bring out my good guy side and say, no, don't worry about it, I'll pay for the lamp, and I can buy a new lamp. Or there's a third option, maybe I just go without a lamp in that room and there's no light, which really wouldn't bother me, it wouldn't be that big of a cost. But for the sake of the illustration, somebody has to pay. Somebody has to absorb the cost of the broken lamp. You have to pay, I have to pay, or I have to go without having light in that particular room. Someone has to absorb the cost of sin. Our sin breaks fellowship with God. Something has to happen to restore that relationship. And the someone that absorbs the cost of sin is Jesus. And he absorbs the cost of sin by drinking the cup of God's wrath on our Behalf, the cup that Jesus asks to have removed from him is symbolic of God's wrath. It refers to his destiny to be handed over as the ransom for many in order to redeem sinners. Dr. Aiken comments on it like this, The cup that so distressed and troubled Jesus was the spiritual suffering he would endure as he would bear the sins of the world and drink to the last drop the fierce wrath of God. As our substitute. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus turns to the Father. And all he can see before him is wrath. All he can see is the abyss. All he can see is the chasm. All he can see is the nothingness of the cup. Jesus began to experience the spiritual Cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his father on the cross. He began to experience merely a foretaste of that in this garden and he staggers and falls to the ground. He's filled with despair and heartache. He is about to become sin. He's burdened with grief, and Luke tells us, sweating blood as he prepares to be crushed for our iniquities and pierced for our transgressions. What's a little odd to me is that if someone in contemporary culture, in our contemporary church climate, acted like Jesus does here, wore their grieving and their sadness on their sleeves, I feel like they would be met with distaste or awkwardness, that they might be called unfaithful even. I think that's because in our culture it's presumed that as Christians we're happy all the time how are you doing I'm great I'm well I'm wonderful although I will be fair some of you do say I'm fair you know when I ask around here so I'm in the middle but it's, it's very rare that I've ever heard anyone tell me when I say how are, how are you doing brother awful suffering my marriage is on the rocks We've become disingenuous because we somehow believe suffering is unchristian. Nothing could be further from the truth. Here we see the Messiah suffer. I think, too, this is why many of us are miserable comforters. I think when we see other people in trouble, we we presume, with good intentions, to try and comfort them by saying something akin to, hey, look on the bright side. You know, if we were with Jesus in the garden, maybe we would say, chin up, Jesus! God has a plan for this. Instead of entering into the suffering of others by crying with them, holding their hands, praying with them, simply being there for them, we attempt to try and explain their pain to them. We try to explain it away as if we understood the manifold wisdom of God. Yes, God has a plan, and we can trust him. But trying to explain someone's suffering by discerning the reasons for their suffering, that does not comfort. Jesus knew God's plan, even every reason for it. Yet still he was distressed. My my, my point here is to say it's okay to be distressed. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to grieve. Our Christian life isn't about pretending to be happy at all times. Life is messy. Life is hard. And God has given us to one another in the church that we might bear one another's burdens and suffer together. Jesus suffers alone so that you will never have to. Jesus is forsaken so that you can know God will never forsake you. Jesus knows what it is to mourn. He knows what it is to be overwhelmed by despair. Trite platitudes do not comfort, but you know what does? Knowing our God knows what it is to suffer. Knowing our God has been tempted just like we have. Knowing our God lives and prays for us right now. Hebrews 4.13 is comforting. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet is without sin. Jesus knows what it is to be human. He's promised never to leave you or never forsake you. And he's grafted you into the community of his people so that you might suffer well and be made like him through it. So that we might encourage one another. God has grafted us together as his people so that he might show in his church a display of his glory as he overrules evil and uses it to serve his righteous purpose. He's that good. Do notice here too as Jesus suffers the disciples are miserable comforters. I mean they don't even do him the courtesy of staying awake and praying for him. Look at verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you still asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Did you catch that he changes Peter's name here? He said to Peter, Simon, that's, that's his old name. Remember, Jesus gives him a new name, Peter, rock. Simon is more shaky, more unsolid. Peter's not the rock here. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Full bellies and heavy eyes numb Peter, James, and John to the reality of Jesus' suffering. Jesus is sorrowful unto death. They are satisfied unto sleep. The disciples give in to the temptation of slumber despite their willingness to try and be faithful to Christ. They're sleeping. They're falling asleep three times. It's another prelude to their coming, falling away. And it also foreshadows Peter's coming three denials. They fall asleep on Jesus. I think we can all relate to Peter, James, and John here, right? All of us have had a Thanksgiving meal, maybe, and you get a little sleepy afterwards. They just ate a full meal. As a result, their desires for sleep overwhelm their desires to obey Christ. We've all had our our metaphorical stomachs filled and our eyes heavy. All at one point or another made ourselves numb to the commands of God. We've all sinned. We've all slept on Jesus What is it that distracts you from Jesus? What causes you to underestimate his holiness? The necessity of loving obedience to his commands? Where are your desires in conflict with God's will? Jesus also understands what it is to wrestle with competing desires. In this garden, Jesus contemplates the unthinkable. He's tempted to follow his desires instead of the Father's. It's true that in eternity past, he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit planned this very moment. But now its weight is pressing down on him. The desire to escape suffering screams loudly within. Keller writes, Jesus is undone. He is honestly and desperately asking God to change the circumstances, praying that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. He cries out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Jesus is contending with the Father, asking him for a way out, asking for another way to rescue us without having to personally go under the flaming sword of judgment. Look closely, though. In the end, Jesus is obeying. In the end, Jesus is relinquishing control over his circumstances and submitting his desires to the will of the Father. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. He is wrestling, but obeying in love. It's possible. It's possible at this 11th hour for Jesus to abort his mission and to leave us, to perish. But he doesn't consider that as an option. He's begging the Father to carry out the mission in some other way. But he doesn't ask him to abandon it altogether. Why? Because as horrible as the cup is, he knows that his immediate desire, his loudest desire to be spared, must bow before his ultimate desire to spare us. Often what seem to be our deepest desires are really just our loudest ones. Jesus' loudest desire in the garden is to have the cup of God's wrath removed from him, but his strongest desire is to affectionately obey the Father's will, which is to save you and me from sin. Christian, what are you wrestling with? What are the loud desires that tempt you away from your Savior and towards sin? How might you make them bow to the will of God? Jesus submits his desires to the Father's desires because he knows that ultimately God's desires are his own desires and will result in his good and glory. Jesus' resolution here to declare, Thy will be done. It's revolutionary. You see, because in this garden, Jesus succeeds where Adam failed by refusing to give in to the temptation to listen to self instead of God's word. Indeed, Jesus was making right what went wrong in another garden long ago. He is the new Adam. He is the better Adam. He is the true Adam. He is the new representative of the human race. And he does not falter as Adam faltered. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Through one man, Adam's disobedience, sin entered the world and fractured everything. It broke everything. And so too through one man's obedience is everything made right. Everything renewed and restored. Jesus comes and he lives the life we should have lived, the perfect life. And he dies the death we deserved to die. And he raises from the dead so that we might raise and be made like him through faith in Jesus' life. His death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. He proves his person and his power and his love for you. Jesus puts himself in the Father's hands, to be crushed for the sins of man so that he might rescue us from our sin and that in rescuing us, we might know the lengths and the depths he would go to for us. Faith in Christ frees us to do what we were made for. It frees us to worship him wholeheartedly for all eternity. It enables us to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Jesus' determination to not be like Adam, his determination to give up control of his life to the Father, it's paradigmatic for the Christian life. It's an example to be followed. And how difficult it is to bring our own desires into harmony with God's. I mean, it's a struggle to die to sin, is it not? It's a struggle to follow the desires of the Spirit instead of the desires of the flesh. Which is why I think It's another important reason that we pray. Here's another reason Jesus prays here. Prayer tunes our hearts to the heart of God. It harmonizes our will with his will. friends. Prayer, it's a conversation and an encounter with God wherein we are changed more into who we really are in Christ. So I say struggle and wrestle. Do so through prayer. Let's not miss Jesus' heroics here. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping? I dropped down to verse 41 there. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour is come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus' decision to give up control of his life to the Father is heroic. I mean, do you realize that Jesus is the only person since Adam that could have chosen not to die? Death is the result of sin, and Jesus was sinless. He didn't have to die, but he chose to in order to rescue you and I from the right wrath of God. Now, at this point, you might say, I don't like the idea of the wrath of God. I-, I want a God of love. Right? Maybe you've heard that objection. Maybe you've entertained it yourself. I want a God of love, not a God of wrath. The problem is that if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. Think about it loving people can get angry, not in spite of their love, but because of it. For example, I think we can all agree that my wife is loving and kind and sweet as honey, right? But I promise you, if you endangered one of our children, she would violently snuff you out without any regard. You don't mess with Mama Bear's Cubs. Why? Because of her intense love for her children. See, the more loving you are, the more ferociously angry you will be at whatever harms your beloved. And the greater the harm, the more resolute your opposition will be. I'm going to quote Tim Keller at length here uh, because he's smarter than me. This is what he says. When we think of God's wrath, we usually think about God's justice, and that is right. Those who care about justice get angry when they see justice being trampled upon. And we should expect a perfectly just God to do the same. But we don't ponder how much his anger is also a function of his love and goodness. The Bible tells us that God loves everything he has made. That's one reason that he's angry at what's going on in creation. He is angry at anything or anyone that is destroying the people in the world he loves. His capacity for love is so much greater than ours, and the cumulative extent of evil in the world is so vast that the word wrath doesn't do justice to how God rightly feels when he looks at the world. So it makes no sense to say, I don't want a wrathful God, I want a loving God. If God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil. Angry enough to do something about it. Consider this also, if you don't believe in a God of wrath, you have no idea of your value. Here's what I mean, a God without wrath, has no need to go to the cross and suffer incredible agony and die in order to save you. you picture on the left, my left, you're right, I guess, Uh, if you picture on the left a God who pays nothing in order to love you and picture on the right the God of the Bible who, because he is angry at evil, must go to the cross, absorb the debt, pay the ransom, and suffer immense torment, how do you know how much the free love God actually loves you or values you? Always, love is just a concept. You don't know it all. This God pays no price in order to love you. But how valuable are you to the God of the Bible? Valuable enough that He would go to the depths of Calvary for you. Don't sleep on Jesus' love. Don't underestimate the love of this God. Jesus goes through the terror of Gethsemane, so you never have to go through it yourself. This God is the only person that can satisfy the human soul. Jesus Christ is the only place your restless heart will find rest. I urge you to find satisfaction for your soul. Find rest for your heart and true life by giving your life to the one who gave his life for you. This garden interprets and reveals Calvary. It's here that Jesus resolved to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of God's blessing. It's here that Spurgeon has said, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath in both hands and he drank damnation dry. Indeed, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs so that we might drink that fourth cup he left on the table with the Passover meal. The cup of renewed relationship with God. So that we might drink that cup of renewed relationship with God when he returns to merge heaven and earth into the new Jerusalem. So that we might one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb raise our glasses and toast to his greatness and his glory when he finally drinks the fruit of the vine in his kingdom. Our God is so good. Don't leave this garden today without recognizing how valuable you are and how loved you are by the God of the universe. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, your goodness to us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that even though we are more wicked than we ever dared dream, That at the same time, in Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. We thank you that we get to drink the the cup of blessing because you drank the cup of wrath as our substitute. This is love. And in you alone will we find life abundant. You are our joy. and We praise you and thank you this morning. Amen.